So now we go into our monthly episode of Ask Swami, where there are so many questions which come in from all over the world. And I try to deal with those questions, respond to the questions, both from our virtual audience all over the world and also from the live audience here. So the way we usually do it is one question uh, will be read out from the questions sent from the from people around the world will be read out by Diane and I'll respond to it. Then somebody from here, just raise your hand. I'll ask you to come here uh, in the front row. Tell us your name, ask the question. Wait here till the question is answered and then you go back to your seat. And this is how we will go uh, as long as we have time. Um, all right, let's take a question from the virtual audience. Uh, Swamiji, this is a question from a devotee who would rather remain anonymous. All right. Involuntary thoughts are mostly negative and bad. How do we uproot them? If we are what we think, does it mean these ugly thoughts will bring us suffering and misery? If what we think that we become, then how does karma come into play? I have noticed people who are positive thinkers and are not necessarily good people, but have very good peaceful lives. So is it my thought or is it my karma that makes my destiny? I'll answer the last one first. Is it my thought or is it my karma that makes my destiny? Both. <laughs> um, yes, that's an easy one. But let's go back to the first one. Our uh, thoughts which come up in the mind the person who writes this says that it is uh, often it is negative, not helpful. What happens is this. If we introspect inwards, we'll see that the thoughts which come up, come up from some unknown source, from a, from a subconscious reservoir of uh, tendencies. The Yoga Sutra, which is the manual par excellence on meditation, the most ancient book on meditation which we have, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. There, there are different commentaries on that. One of the, the main commentary is by Vyasa. It's called Vyasa Bhashya, commentary by Vyasa. There an interesting discussion takes place exactly on this subject. What it says here, there is that we have a storehouse of tendencies or traces what in the modern world we might call the subconscious mind. <clears throat> the yogic term for that is samskaras. Samskaras are traces which are left in our mind by past actions, not necessarily in one birth. If you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Jain or a Sikh, you believe in many births. So maybe from many past lives, in our subtle body, especially in the mind, these samskaras are there, these tendencies, and they bubble up and they become conscious thoughts. It's only at a late stage that we become aware of a desire, an annoyance, an irritation, something that's bubbling up from within, which might not be caused by anything in the world outside. It just, or it might be a reaction to something caused in the world. It comes from within. Where it comes from? From those samskaras. Now, so one word is samskara. Samskaras are traces left in the sub subconscious mind by our past actions, past language, what we say, and past thoughts. 
So thought, word and deed, they leave traces on our mind, especially if they are repeated again and again. Now these samskaras become conscious thoughts or thoughts at the level of the conscious mind. When it comes to the conscious mind, the Sanskrit word for that is vritti. Vritti is a modification of the mind stuff, like a little wave comes up on a lake. So the mind is like a lake, a wave comes up in the lake, a thought, a desire, something. Maybe anger, maybe resentment, maybe guilt, um, various kinds of thoughts, they come up. Maybe memories surface suddenly for no good reason at all. So these become vrittis. And then what happens is, if you entertain those vrittis, if the vritti stays on the surface of the mind long enough, it sinks back into the mind, into the subconscious mind and becomes a samskara. So you see the cycle. Samskara bubbles up, comes up as a vritti. And the vritti dwells in the surface of the mind. Especially if you act upon it. If the thought comes up and if you express it in speech and action, then the vritti gets strengthened and it sinks back again. It seems to go away from our mind after a while. Even the most um, fearsome rage or the most darkest depression, it goes away. But it does not disappear. It goes back into the storehouse of samskaras and strengthens existing samskaras or creates new ones. This cycle of samskara and vritti goes on unceasingly day and night in all our waking moments, especially even dreams. So this is, this is a cycle which goes on. In the commentary in Sanskrit it is said, evam vritti samskara rupa chakram aharnisham vartamanam. Day and night this cycle is rotating. Now because of the way we have led our lives, not carefully, not mindfully, a lot of negative stuff has gone into our minds. I sometimes joke that we are so careful about what we eat and you would not go into a, go to a dumpster and put your hand in there and bring out food and eat it, rotten food. It'd be, your tummy would be upset immediately. But we do that to our minds. We take in things from the world indiscriminately. We dump things into the mind until it becomes a, a mental dumpster. So no wonder that the mind is full of negative uh, negativities. Now what do you do about it? Because it is rotating continuously. Normally we don't do anything about it. And so, like in computers, you have a default mode. When you boot a computer, whatever is programmed, that will start. So whatever is in there, that bubbles up and we sort of act on that and we live. This is our life. But you can consciously change it. Yoga says we can consciously change our vrittis and thereby our samskaras. The samskaras, the tendencies, the storehouse, we have no direct access to that. It's something that in the modern times Freud discovered that there is a, an, a subconscious layer to the mind, though it is being challenged now by modern psychology. So there is a, this seems to be the storehouse in our mind to which we have no direct access. That's why your therapist, not right now, but maybe 40 or 50 years ago when Freudian psychotherapy was all the rage and they would ask you for the contents of your dreams or free associates, sit down on the couch and talk, things like that. Because we have no direct access to the subconscious storehouse, it is only in dreams or in free association 
what bubbles up. They want to see, the therapist wants to see what bubbles up from within. So those are the samskaras. We have no direct access to it. But what we do have direct access to are the vrittis. So as the conscious thoughts, as they come to the conscious level, we become aware of it. And before it takes hold, before it becomes strong, before it becomes an irresistible tendency to, you know, punch that irritating guy, uh, or to sink into depression and, and, and uh, I will not get out of bed today, it's, the world is dark. Before it becomes that, the, the thought comes up. It's still fresh and weak before we give it power by acting on it or starting to do things. At that time, yoga says you can replace a negative vritti with a positive vritti. I'll rep repeat that. These thoughts which come up in our minds at the initial stage when they come up, you, they can be replaced. A skillful yogi will replace negativities with positive thoughts. Thoughts of anger with thoughts of peace. Thoughts of jealousy with thoughts of happiness. Thoughts of uh, depression with, thoughts, with positive thoughts. So you can replace this and this is possible. If you replace it, a negative thought with a positive, instead of just letting it come up and express itself, if you replace it, what will happen is you will dwell with a positive thought, a positive vritti for some time and that will sink back into the storehouse, thereby weakening the negative vrittis and setting up new positive vrittis. If you are with me this, so far, this uh, nice example I read of a Zen teacher and the student goes and complains about exactly this thing that when I meditate all sorts of negative thoughts come up in the mind, bad thoughts, unwanted thoughts. And the teacher said, here is a bowl with um, stones, you know the polished stones which there are in the Japanese gardens, so smooth stones, black stones and white stones. And here's an empty bowl. Whenever a negative thought bubbles up in your mind, in your calmness of meditation, take a black stone and put it in the empty bowl. If a positive thought comes, take a white stone and put it in the empty bowl. And go on practicing like this. And the student did that. Initially, you know what happened? The, the bowl, empty bowls were soon filled up with black stones. Maybe one or two white stones were there. But over time, as he watched, over time, slowly the white stones in the bowl increased till the one day the bowl was mostly white, were white stones. Um, what it means is slowly we can reprogram, change the inner conditioning. The practice is to replace negative thoughts, vrittis, with positive ones. Now it's easy to say that, not so easy to do it. What is required, what enables us to do it, is a calm and meditative mind. If the mind is not meditative, habitually a little calm and reflective and introspective and quiet, what will happen is, before you know it, before you know it, negative vrittis have bubbled up from the mind and taken over the mind. We have patterns of thinking. We think thousands of thoughts in a day, but the thoughts are not original or different or new. Mostly they are the same kind of thoughts. So let's become aware of our thought patterns. Put a little distance between yourself and the mind. You are not the mind. If there's one lesson that you should take away from 
The Vedanta society is that we are not our minds. We are the knowers, the illuminers, the witness of our minds. In my light, the mind functions. Thoughts come up, stay and disappear. The mind is an instrument, just like the body is an instrument, the mind is an app, a collection of apps. So you can use it as you will. Normally it does not seem like that. It seems that it has taken over us. It's because we have given it power. The way to take control of the mind is to first become calm, put a little distance between yourself and the mind, psychologically. And then try this process. It's an ancient insight. A commentary on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, which is an answer to this question. You can replace negative vrittis with positive ones. Unwanted thought patterns with, with uh, healthy thought patterns. At first it will be a struggle, it will be difficult, but worthwhile. Over time it changes. The Gita says the mind alone is your worst enemy and is your best friend. Krishna says that in the Gita. How is the mind the worst enemy and the best friend? The mind uncontrolled is your worst enemy. The mind controlled is your best friend. I think it's Milton, the poet who wrote in Paradise Lost. The mind in its own place can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. The mind by itself. Doesn't matter what your external circumstances are, how bad it is. It can be transformed into a heaven by the mind. Just by the attitude, the way the mind reacts to the circumstances. No matter how good one's circumstances are, it can be transformed into a hell by the mind uncontrolled. I was, in, I, I was teaching children for a long time and young people for two decades uh, nearly. And uh, I saw young people from the best of families where parents were rich and prosperous and good family. All of that is there and yet they ruin themselves. Maybe by drug addiction or by some kind of something. And children coming up sometimes from the worst of circumstances, a terrible struggle. And they make their lives, they, they, they have wonderful lives, which they create themselves. It, the difference is in the mind. All right. <clears throat> Questions from the live audience? It could be anything related to spiritual life. Yes. Uh, please come. Tell us your name and then ask the question. Namaste Swamiji. Uh, my name is Dheeraj. Yes. Um, Are you able to hear? Is the mic on? Yes, it's on. So um, my question is about, um, you had briefly mentioned in one of your lectures about the fault lines in the nature of reality, uh, the error in Maya. Yes. Can you please explain that in more detail? All right. It's a phrase which I had used, I think, I remember I had used this phrase. Now it's coming back to bite me. <laughs> Somebody had heard this. So Dheeraj is asking me that once I had mentioned uh, about the fault lines in our experience, the nature of reality, uh, that, that uh, indicates Maya, that this is not real. In fact, I remember there's a book, John Barrow, the book is called Impossibility. It's about science and how in every field of science we are now coming across paradoxes 
inconsistencies, incompleteness. It talks about uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem and so on in every, every field, whether it's mathematics or logic or physics. As the science advances far enough, even biology, as the science advances far enough, we come across tremendous paradoxes. In the, in the, by the 19th century, the idea was among scientists that we are going to learn very soon, we are going to complete knowledge. We are going to learn all that is to be learned about physics and life in biology, about mathematics. In each field, there was this optimism. And in the 20th century, in each field, it seems the optimism was shattered. As we learned more and more, the nature of reality uh, seemed to be seems to be evading our understanding now. There seems to be mysteries at the very bottom, at the very depth of reality. That's one thing from a scientific point of view. From the Vedantic point of view, I could give you a few interesting clues to this. The things are not what they seem. One is, um, we seem to be, you know, there's this word out there, we are experiencing this world, you, this is not me, this is me, I am this being within this, uh, you know, body of flesh and blood, a subject and an object, an individual and the world. And this is how we experience life. But is this really so? Vedanta says, consider the dream example. In the dream example, what happens when we dream? We are in, in some place, we're talking with people, there are people and animals and events. You are yourself there in your dream. You have a body and everything and you don't know you're dreaming. It seems real. And there are good things happening, sometimes they're good dreams, sometimes they're bad dreams and so on. It's only when you wake up, you realize, oh, it was all a dream. The interesting thing about the dream example is, once you wake up, you realize both the subject and the object in the dream. You in the dream and all the people you met in the dream and all the things that happened in the dream and all the places you visited in the dream, all of them are nothing but you yourself. When I wake up from a dream, I realize the places I went to, the events that happened, the people I met, I met and I myself who was there, all of it was imagined in this one mind. So the mind can project itself as a subject and an object, right? So what seemed to be external, when you wake up, you realize it was all internal. It was all in my mind. What seemed to be the other, when you wake up, you realize it was not the other. It's me, myself. I, I alone appeared as another. All right, so what? Now Vedanta says, here is the interesting claim that Vedanta makes. This very experience we are having here, that's a waking a dream experience, but the waking experience itself, according to Vedanta, is exactly like that. Not a dream, but with respect to the existence, consciousness, bliss, the ultimate reality which Vedanta speaks about, all of this which we experience as a separate world and individuals experiencing it, all of them are actually all appearing in one underlying reality. Vivekananda puts it this way, one alone exists. 
it appears as nature soul nature soul means object nature means this objective universe soul means the subject as you the individual and the world that you experience so it seems to be so different but Vedanta says they are all one reality they are all one reality all this diversity is one reality and not only is it one reality what is that one reality it's you it's you where is the fault line which expresses this which, which shows us this and this seems to be a very physical universe out there and you seem to be separate from it and experiencing it let me point it out in three steps follow this carefully this is the essence of Advaita Vedanta if you get it you've got all of Advaita Vedanta if you don't get it at least be intrigued by it and try to think uh, think about it. It, it I'll try to put it as simply as possible in three steps it's like this What are we trying to see? That there is one reality in which the entire universe, including you yourself, you are, uh, it's there, and it, that reality is you yourself. That's what we are trying to see. And I'm claiming it's possible to see it right here, right now, in three steps. Okay. Here goes. I saw this movie once. They, they had references to many things, like Alice in Wonderland, like Down the Rabbit Hole. It was called the Mat Matrix movie. So, the matrix. So, uh, there, uh, in this very reality itself, we can penetrate to a deeper reality. So, that's what we're going to do right now, down the rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, here is an example. Step one. Here's an object. Something you can see, right? With me so far, an object? Simplest. The simplest. The first step is really, really simple. Here's an object. Now, Stage step two, I want you to consider is it just an object or is it that you are experiencing an object? What's the truth about the situation? Is it a book by itself or is it that you are seeing a book? You are experiencing a book. It's a book by itself, you are not there? You are here, right? So, I'm trying to notice something. It's not just a book. It's a book being seen by you. Better description of the situation? It's an object in your experience. Doesn't matter that you're seeing it. It could be touching it, um, it could be something that you smell or taste. Or... It's an object in your experience. Think about it. No object that you have ever become aware of has been anything other than an object in your experience. If you're aware of it, it's a truism. It must be in your experience. Stage two is, it's not an object by itself. It's an object of which I have knowledge. I'm having knowledge of this object. Are you with me so far? Yes. It's only slightly more difficult than what I've said. And I'm making a comment now about this. An aside, a, a derivation, a, a sort of um, implication of this second step. Whatever you have experienced in your life has been experienced by you in your knowledge. Something that you saw, heard, smelt, tasted, or you thought about it, you remembered it, you desired it, you disliked it, you liked it. It has been something in your experience, in your, in your knowledge.
Other than that, you, that you have not experienced anything in your life. Other than that, there is no life for you. This, it's only within the, your lived experience is your life. Right? This is stage two. two. Object not by itself, in your experience. You're saying, yeah, yeah, we get it. Go on. What's the stage three? It's, it seems pretty easy so far. <laughs> stage three is subtle. Stage three is all this knowledge, all of this is nothing apart from what I might call experience or awareness or consciousness. Your knowledge, does it not take place in consciousness or awareness? Third point I'm making. Point three, it's very important. Call it awareness, call it, null, call it consciousness, call it experience itself. All objects are in knowledge. All knowledge is in your experience. I'm using the word experience as um, interchangeable with awareness or consciousness. There is no knowledge possible without consciousness. Do you agree? Yes. You cannot have knowledge unless you are conscious or aware or sentient, right? And no object is ever, ever experienced, or no event, no object, no person, nothing is experienced unless you have knowledge of it. So none of the objects are there other than in your knowledge. No knowledge is possible other than in your consciousness. The only thing that you have is consciousness experiencing itself. First as knowledge and then later as the object of that knowledge. Wait, wait. Yes, the conclusion she said was, but for that con uh, consciousness there is nothing that we are experiencing. And that consciousness or awareness indubitably you are. It's like a magician who you might, you might say that suddenly pulled a rabbit out of the hat. Wait, wait, wait a minute, what did you say? Very simple, three steps. Object, step one. Knowledge of object, step two. Consciousness or experience, step three. No objects are there without knowledge of them. Controversial statement. You'll, people can, philosophers can debate it. No knowledge is possible without consciousness. That's not so controversial. If no object is possible without the knowledge of that obje uh, object, then the object is not apart from that knowledge. It's a constituent of that knowledge. If no knowledge is possible apart from consciousness, then the knowledge is no reality apart from that consciousness. Ultimately, it's all reduced to consciousness itself or experience itself. And you, that, that experience, pure experience or pure consciousness is you yourself, is your own real nature. Call it being, many, many words are used, sat, being, chit, consciousness. The Buddhists have a very interesting term they use, clear light of the void. Right here, in this world itself, that's why the dream example is very applicable. I'll quickly indicate two more fault lines. Here what I've done is I've not indicated a fault line, but I've shown you in this experience itself 
we can you can at least you can change your paradigm your complete point of view about this worldly experience which we are all having instead of thinking a separate subject experiencing a separate object question can easily be asked where have you ever experienced the object apart from yourself from your own knowledge never never in philosophy they call it the standing scandal of philosophy that you cannot really demonstrate the existence of an external world you never experienced an object apart from your knowledge of that object and any kind of by knowledge i mean what you get with the operation of the instruments of knowledge seeing hearing smelling touching tasting or inference scientific thinking logical thinking and all of that cannot exist without consciousness if they cannot exist without consciousness then they are nothing apart from consciousness all of these are names and forms superimposed on consciousness in reality consciousness alone it's only reality and that's what you are all right let me quickly indicate two fault lines one is a very general thing things change things change true hmm? all things are impermanent true things are created they exist and they they're destroyed anityam the buddha noticed this first anityam anityam sarvam anityam impermanent impermanent all is impermanent why should this be an interesting fact here is the fault line um yes settle down yeah relax Why should this be an in- interesting fact? Look at it this way. First fact is things are impermanent. They change, they change, they are created, they exist and they are de- they are destroyed. Look at it this way. It's like things come into being, they gain existence, they retain existence and they lose existence. Okay? Let me give you an example here. when we cook say boiling a potato so you have the expression hot potato now does the heat in the potato does it belong to the potato the potato was cold earlier it's hot now it will become cold again when you have to you serve it in a few minutes where did the potato get the heat from you'll say from the boiling water in the pan the boiling water in the pan the heat that it has the, is it intrinsic to the water no where did that uh, um water get the heat from from the hot pan and the pan is also not intrinsically hot it got it from the fire or the electric coil underneath right so neither the potato has intrinsic heat of its own neither the pan has in, uh, the water has intrinsic heat of its own nor the pan has intrinsic heat of its own but next we come to the fire Where did the fire get the heat from? Is it is it intrinsically hot? Yes. Yes. As long as the fire is there, it's hot. The pan borrowed heat from the fire. The water borrowed heat from the pan, and the potato borrowed heat from the water. What is the distinguishing fact between the fire and the others? They all become hot and then they lose the heat. They gain heat and they lose heat. they are not 
always hot. They don't have heat all the time. So, generalizing, one sign of a property which is not intrinsic is that one can gain it and lose it. If it is natural to you, intrinsic to you, you would always have it. An entity which has that property would always have it if it's intrinsic. If it is borrowed, if it is incidental, then it will come and go. Okay with me so far? As far as the, the question of existence as an intrinsic property, then what will happen to that thing? If a thing does not have heat as an intrinsic property, what will happen to it? Sometimes it will be cold, sometimes it will be hot and again it will become cold. It will gain heat and lose heat if it is not naturally hot. But similarly, if a, if a thing has, does not have intrinsic existence, does not have being intrinsic to itself, what will happen to it? It will? Yes, it will die. It will come into existence and then it will disappear. It will come into existence, it will disappear. In other words, it will be impermanent, subject to change. That means everything that is subject to change in this way of looking does not have intrinsic existence. It borrows existence. But from what? Ultimately, all borrowing must be from something that has intrinsic property. So all, all, all those things which were hot and they lost it, they got, became hot and they lost it again, they all borrowed it from the fire which was always hot. So there must be something which has intrinsic existence. And the only thing that can have intrinsic existence, logically speaking, is being itself, existence itself. That never goes out of existence. That's the Vedantic idea of Sat. Vedantic idea of Sat. So all things, in this way we are putting it, all things borrow existence, derive their existence from Sat, from pure being. You might protest at this point and say that pure being, that sounds like an abstraction. A Vedantist will say all things in the universe are abstractions. It's that pure being alone is the reality. It's the only one that has existence, that is. That alone lends reality to all these names and forms, whether they are people or things or events, whether they are bodies or minds or thoughts or ideas, all things come into existence and disappear, borrowing existence from Sat, pure being. What is the fault line which gives us a clue to this? The impermanence of things. Think about it, I've given you a very profound thing. In the Bhagavad Gita, there is a verse, second chapter, sixteenth verse. Nasato vidyate bhavo, na bhavo vidyate sataha. The unreal never comes into existence, and the real never goes out of existence. The wise know the truth about these two. Shankaracharya in his commentary writes pages and pages and pages. What I've just told you, about intrinsic existence and losing the existence and not losing the existence and the possibility of a, of a pure being, an isness. All of that is controlled, uh, all of that is, uh, is uh, uh, discussed in Shankaracharya's commentary there. I'm just giving you the summary. What do they call it? The executive summary or something? <laughs> yeah. I'm giving you the, this is some notes are there, students use it. Cliff notes. Cliff notes. Yeah. yeah. I gave you the cliff notes. <laughs> If you actually had to study the commentary, it would take a few, several classes actually. 
But the clue there, the fault line uh, is the simple fact everybody knows. We see it all the time. We never note, note what it means. According to Vedanta, it means something very profound. What is that fault line? The impermanence of things. That the very simple fact that things come into being and disappear. That people are born and die. Things are produced and destroyed. In the Gitanjali, Rabindranath Tagore, in the English translation I'll tell you, there's a very beautiful thing which struck to my mind, you know. He says, a leaf, a dry leaf breaks up from the tree and floats down to the lake, you know. And it sets up ripples on the lake. He says, it is the one same cosmic movement, the leaf falling and the ripples going out on the surface of the lake to the stars being born and dying. It's a one cosmic movement in the universe. Coming into being and then slowly dropping out of being. Behind all of this, it points to an unchanging reality, Brahman. Fault line. The last fault line I'll indicate is a subtler one. Uh, it's, um, it's this. It's a, it's a very specific fault line. You know, we have three kinds of experiences throughout the day. We are awake right now, hopefully. <laughs> and then we go to, we fall asleep and we're tired and we dream. And then we, we have deep sleep, dreamless sleep. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. In Sanskrit, Jagrat, Swapna, Sushupti. This we know. Now, what happens in, in deep sleep? The mind, which, was, which is active. What is waking? The mind is active along with the sense organs and we contact an external world. It seems like that. What is dream? Our body falls asleep, but the mind is still active and it generates like movies. We are not in contact with the external world. We have forgotten that we are lying on the bed. But in our mind, we live a virtual reality. It's a dream. Mind is still active. What's deep sleep? The mind completely shuts down. The mind is resolved. It's a state of blankness. Now, when you wake up, it's a classic Vedantic analysis. When we wake up, we say, I slept nicely. I slept like a log. I didn't know anything. This kind of phrase is there in almost every language in the world. I slept like a log. I didn't know anything. The very fact that you can say, I slept like a log. I didn't know anything points to the fact that there must have been a continuity of experience. That's why I say deep sleep is not an absence of experience. It's an experience of absence. This is all I have mentioned earlier. But the fault line I'm pointing to is this. A Swami in the Himalayas, in, in, uh, in Vrindavan actually, pointed this out. He says that when you wake up, what do you say? I slept nicely. Okay? Who says that? It's the mind which says it. Mind wakes up and then starts thinking, oh, I was sleeping, now I'm awake. Yeah. I slept, it was good sleep, I slept nicely. Who's doing all that thinking? If it's thinking, it must be the mind. You follow my logic? But what did I say just now? Deep sleep, the mind was stopped. There was no thinking in deep sleep. In deep sleep, you don't think, I am in deep sleep. If you do that, you're not in deep sleep. <laughs> you're not in deep sleep then. So the mind was not working at that time. It's not the mind which experienced deep sleep. Yet when you wake up, the mind appropriates that experience and says, I was asleep. And yet, 
the fact is there was deep sleep and it feels natural to stay who else was sleeping except me i was sleeping so who is the i who was there in deep sleep where the mind was not there whose experience the mind borrows appropriates upon waking up that's a fault line mind was not there and the, yet the mind insists that i was asleep whose experience is it that the mind is borrowing if you investigate that the difference between that and the mind i'm just calling it that which was there in deep sleep there's a old tamil saying i don't know the original tamil but the english is to sleep without sleeping mm. one swami who was regarded as in our order as regarded as the brahmagyani he wrote a poem in malayalam the language in kerala so i don't know the language but the english translation the the, the title of the poem is so evocative and only a person who is an enlightened person could even say something like that he calls it the midnight sun it's completely dark no world no body no thoughts no identity no memories nothing and yet you're fully completely awake what can that be so these are some fault lines thank you dheeraj for a very subtle question <laughs> thank you can we take a question from the um internet audience uh, yes swami we we've had actually a few um questions regarding deep sleep all right and um let's take that those then what you've spoken about <clears throat> in the past when we wake up from deep sleep we have an overall feeling of well-being and bliss this bliss has been attributed by many teachers to the natural state of consciousness the ananda part of sat chit ananda but there's another kind of experience of falling unconscious this also feels like deep sleep but there is no sense of joy or bliss upon waking up there is no sense of continuity and like what happens with sleep it's not even an experience it is a total absence of experience question 1 could the blissful experience of sleep be due to sleep related hormones like serotonin endorphins etc and not due to the bliss inherent in consciousness Two. If not, then why don't I feel blissful or continuous after recovering from unconsciousness? If these were primary attributes of consciousness, shouldn't they have continued in the background like what happens with sleep experiences? Could this absence of any kind of experience be the reason the Buddhists call it the void instead of chit and ananda in Vedanta? That question was from Charat. All right. And we do have another one. Did you Let me take that first. Right. I'm reminded of something funny. I mean, if you have multiple questions, you tend to forget the earlier one. <laughs> This is not relevant to the question. I'll come back to the question, but let me tell you the funny story. It was many, many years ago, 20 years ago, where uh, I was in our main monastery in Belur Math in Calcutta and we have a huge educational complex uh, a place called Narendrapur uh, near Calcutta. and so there was a german delegation coming uh, to and they wanted to speak with the swamis in narendrapur um and the swami in narendrapur invited uh, some other swamis to be part of the the swami delegation which would talk with the 
the visiting uh, German bureaucrats. There was a minister, there were um, bureaucrats and so on. So I was very young at that time. I was a newly minted monk. But one of the senior swamis who was going to be part of the panel told me, come along. You can tag along and be, just watch what the proceedings. You can, you can sit on the panel. So I went there and um, there was an interpreter and the German, uh, they, 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 were, they, they were very German. <laughs> I'm not saying it in any bad sense, but <laughs> they, were, they were very, uh, very efficient and very serious. So the interpreter said, question number one, so and so, you know, what, I remember the first question, even now, what, how do you account for the, the unbroken continuity of Indian civilization for the past 5,000 years? And our Swamis, as they are wont to do it, immediately they were uh, about to answer. And the German minister said, stop, hmm. uh, in German. And he said, let me ask all the questions, and then you can answer. So they asked five questions, one after another. And then the interpreter said, that is it, please answer. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> now the Swamis, we are very Indian, so they suddenly looked at each other. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> now, luckily, because I had nothing better to do, I thought the senior Swamis would answer the question. So I'd, I had started writing down the questions. So I showed them, here are the questions. And the Swamis were so happy, and they told the other senior Swami, good that you brought this youngster along. <laughs> He's worth his weight in gold. <laughs> anyway, that's the story. Let's take the questions one by one. I remember the questions. <laughs> First is, in deep sleep, do we the, the bliss, the peacefulness that we experience, so is that ananda, the bliss which we speak about in Vedanta, such chit ananda, there itself is a mistake. No, that's not ananda. It's a restfulness. In deep sleep, what happens is, because the troubles of the waking world starting from your mortgage, to the annoying neighbor, to the lack of parking space, all these troubles are not there in deep sleep. The nightmares of the dream world, where you have anxieties and phobias and expressed as dreams, those are also not there in the deep sleep. So no problems are there in deep sleep. There is no problem, no desire or effort to fulfill the desire, so it's deep peacefulness and restfulness. That is what accounts for the the positive experience we have about deep sleep. When we come up and say, that was good. So it was just blank, but it was good. No problem at all. So it's restfulness, a peacefulness. Look at the word, peacefulness. Not peace itself, but peacefulness. Something is full of peace. So deep sleep is a state full of peace. This is literally the translation of the technical term in Vedanta, Anandamaya. In Vedanta you speak about Anandamaya Kosha, the sheath of bliss or the blissful sheath. That is the experience of deep sleep. It is not Ananda itself, not bliss itself. It's a reflection of Ananda. In, in the uh, deep sleep, there is a reflection of Ananda. It is not Satchidananda, the ultimate bliss itself, uh, uh, the Brahman itself. Why? Well, Ananda, Satchidananda is always there. In waking, in dreaming, in deep sleep. In happiness, in misery, the background is always there. We just don't know it. 
The restfulness which is experienced in deep sleep belongs to deep sleep only. It's there in deep sleep, it's not there anywhere else. So it cannot be Brahman which is always there. It's impermanent. So restfulness in deep sleep is because there is no trouble. There is no um, misery. We do not take the misery of the waking world, the dream world into the deep sleep. That's why. Now, he contrasts it with unconsciousness. And he says, unconsciousness seems to be different from deep sleep because of, it seems to be completely blank. And also after coming up from that, I don't feel rested or peaceful. I feel uneasy. So ultimately, if it is Ananda, it should be there everywhere in, in, um, uh, in deep sleep also, in unconsciousness also. But I've already pointed out the Ananda of deep sleep is not the Satchidananda. It's Ananda Maya, restfulness. This topic of unconsciousness is actually discussed by Shankaracharya and the Brahma Sutra. The question raised there is, why only talk about three states, waking, dreaming and deep sleep? We also have intermediate states. Uh, states. Some people have daydreams. Some people have coma. Some people are knocked unconscious. He gives the example of being hit on the head with a club, which, which might not happen so often these days, but I'm sure it happened in ancient India. <laughs> so being hit on the head with a club and then you fall unconscious. And he mentions when you wake up from that, it's not restful. It's, it's, you don't come out and say, oh, I slept like a log. No. So it's quite unpleasant. So that's another state. What Shankaracharya says there is important. He says, yes, there are different possible states, depending on the state of the mind, of the body. There could be coma, there could be trances, there could be mystical experiences, there could be daydreaming. But what he says is, in Vedanta we use only these three, waking, dreaming and deep sleep. You know why? Because these three are common and available to you, all, all of us, all the time. Every day we have waking, dreaming and deep sleep. It's not every day that you get hit on the head with a club, thank God. <laughs> it's not every day that you fall unconscious, thank God. And it's not every day that we have mystical visions, very few people have it anyway. So these are common experiences and they are used in Vedanta because, for analysis. In order to point out the one consciousness behind waking, dreaming and deep sleep. So, it is only natural to answer his question. It's only natural that coming out of unconsciousness would feel different from coming out of um, deep sleep. But the point in Vedanta is not that. And then the question he follows on by asking, so is it that the happiness of deep sleep is due to serotonin or something like that? You're mixing up two things. Why only deep sleep? In that case, the happiness you get from having a cookie in waking state, that also, is it due to um, the bliss of Brahman or is it due to uh, serotonin in the body? That depends on your paradigm. If you are taking a materialist reductive paradigm that everything is body and everything is generated by movements in the body, by neurons firing, by neurochemicals like serotonin and others, and the, what we experience as happiness, bliss, cognitive events, they're all byproducts, epiphenomena. That's the most, uh, most uh, radical kind of reductionism. It's a, it's a gross materialistic reductionism. And it's not working. It's not working. I refer you to, as I often do, to the hard problem of consciousness. 
If you Google it, you'll find it's a huge thing now. The hard problem of consciousness. Why the brain and nervous system by themselves are and all your serotonin and everything are not enough to explain first person experience. How does a soup of um, serotonin or um, the other uh, neurochemicals involved in moods and dopamine, uh, how are they with little tissues called nerve cells, neurons, and their little electrical impulses ju jumping from synapse to synapse. How, are how is that creating this experience you are having? Of seeing a red flower, of smell smelling the incense, of uh, the sense of the body that you have, of taste, of sound, of smell, of, of sight. This first person subjective experience, it's a miracle. How is it created by a, a small uh, collection of chemicals? It's not. Modern sci uh, today scientists are saying that you can't explain it. We have to have a new theory of consciousness. That's what um, consciousness studies people are saying. An entirely new theory of consciousness is necessary. And David Chalmers, who is here in NYU, he says he, he advocates what is called panpsychism. That consciousness is fundamental. Just like space, time, matter, energy. Remember, this is a person who is not at all from an Eastern philosophy background. He is he's coming at it from a purely uh, rational, uh, modern, scientific and philosophical uh, outlook. So he says that we, we are driven to this position. He calls it panpsychism. That there is, consciousness is a fundamental reality like time, space, matter, energy. It's like if, if you admit that, that's as good as admitting Sankhya philosophy, not yet Advaita Vedanta, but Sankhya philosophy or Yoga philosophy, which says there are two realities in this universe, consciousness and nature. Nature is matter, energy, time, space. And you are consciousness, involved in nature through a body-mind. So that's David Chalmers, panpsychism. And he remarks humorously, I was reading in one of his interviews, that if you consider the problem of consciousness long enough, if you consider the problem of consciousness long enough, you either become a panpsychist, that means you think that it has to be, consciousness is fundamental, or you go into administration. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the answer. Consciousness is responsible for all these experiences, including bliss. And yes, they're byproducts, they're, ref they're reflected in the body, in the um, serotonin and the dopamine and the movements of the ner nervous system and the brain, that's there, of course. That's the physical counterpart. Can we go to the next question about... Yes, the, the other one was from Sentel, who you've actually answered a lot of the questions from that. Um, at the end he does say, though, we can say the substratum of human consciousness is pure awareness. Hmm. How can we extend it to include the whole material universe and posit that pure consciousness is its substratum? Yes, good question. The three steps which I talked about, the dhiraj, the material universe, I represented it by one object. All objects are like this, a material universe, something that you can see, smell, hear, taste, touch. If it's not available to our sense organs, then it's available to our scientific instruments. 
You can have a huge instrument like the CERN in uh, Switzerland to detect the tiniest possible particles. They're, but they're all objects. They're all objects. And they are presented to you, to me, in our knowledge. In our experience. And all knowledge and experience is possible only in consciousness. If you admit that, then I'll, I'll give you some corollaries. The corollaries are, if two things cannot be presented separately, then you have no right to say that they're two separate entities. You have to seriously consider the possibility that they are one entity. I can show you the cloth and the book separately. Therefore you say the book is something else and the cloth is something else. They don't go together. Hence they are two different entities. But no object in the world is it's possible for you to speak about or experience without knowledge. Every object that you've experienced is in knowledge. And no knowledge, so therefore you cannot speak of objective reality apart from subjective reality. One. Similarly, the subjective reality, you cannot speak about it apart from consciousness. In that case, you cannot say that there is a separate subjective reality and consciousness. That's easier to demonstrate. So, the objective reality reduces to the subjective reality, which reduces to consciousness. Because you cannot speak of them separately, you have no right to say they have an independent existence outside of your consciousness. Hence, the entire material order is reduced to consciousness. This is uh, the conclusion of Advaita Vedanta. If you don't reduce the entire material order to consciousness, if you leave them separate, then that's Sankhya. If you re re take, reduce the entire conscious order, subjective order to the material re reality, then you have materialistic science. In one sense, science and uh, Advaita Vedanta are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Advaita insists on reducing everything to consciousness. And science insists on reducing consciousness to matter. All of conscious experience to matter. And the interesting thing is, there's a saying, the opposite of a petty truth is falsehood. The opposite of a great truth is another great truth. Vivekananda said, I am a materialist of a sort. Only thing is, the material I, I believe in is consciousness, not matter. Matter depends on consciousness, not the other way around. All right, a question from the... Uh, did we deal with the, mm -hmm. uh, the questions on... Yes. Uh, is there a question from the live audience? No? Come. Namaste Swamiji. Namaste. Can you tell us your name? Uh, my name is Manutosh. Yes. Uh, you said something very interesting. You said the entire material order can be reduced to your consciousness. Yes. You use the you you said your consciousness rather than saying just consciousness. Oh. So uh, that there are two parts to my question. One is so it shall be assumed that it's each one of us has our own consciousness, oh. and if so. Um, what about events which affect all of us? So, mm. if there is a natural calamity at this point, right? If there is an earthquake, mm. which affects everybody in this in this room, yes. And suddenly, you know, that's how do how do we explain that parallel um, 
parallel uh, sort a, of a reality. shared public reality right yes right i use the term your consciousness more precise would be you the consciousness when you say your consciousness it seems to imply somewhere that you are something separate from your consciousness it's like saying your body your mind your idea your consciousness not your consciousness you the consciousness what are you according to advaita vedanta if you think about in that that way the three steps i mentioned you are yourself nothing other than consciousness when you think your consciousness plus the app called the mind when you see your consciousness plus mind plus eyes the instrument of seeing but basically the thing that you can the core of your own existence is awareness you can you can uh, experimentally see it you can experientially think about it look at it here is the world clearly not me it's something different from me here i am but this is the body am i aware of the body yes so the body is something in my awareness am i aware of thoughts yes so the thoughts are something in my awareness that awareness or consciousness i'm using the words uh, without any difference so thoughts are also in my consciousness then why should i use the word my consciousness what do i mean by mine by my i mean body and mind or my property or my things all of those are objects then what am i in essence i am that consciousness only that consciousness is common to all of us after all why do we say we are different clearly we are different because bodies are different clearly we are different because minds are different minds are different what you know i do not know what i have experienced you may not have experienced your memories are not shared by your neighbor so minds are different bodies are different but consciousness is not different if you differentiate consciousness from mind and body then you will suddenly see there is no differentiating factor left in consciousness to distinguish your consciousness from his or her consciousness his or her depends on body yeah. thoughts make the difference between one mind and the other but in consciousness what is the distinguishing factor how will you distinguish one consciousness from another the differences between us are differences of body mind not of consciousness so vedanta says we are one consciousness we the, the we think comes when only when there is body mind there is one consciousness in the 13th chapter of bhagavad gita sri krishna says <clears throat> answering this question second shloka in the 13th chapter is a little complicated because there is a issue there because there is one extra verse there in the 13th chapter arjuna starts with a question in some versions of the gita in some versions of the gita the question is not there so the one in which the question is there the verse i am referring to is the third verse in one in which the question is not there the verse i am referring to is the second verse the the verse goes like this क्षेत्रज्ञम चापि माम विद्धि सर्वक्षेत्रेषु भारत ओ अर्जुन कृष्ण सेज नो मी टू बी द वन कॉन्शियसनेस इन ऑल दीज फील्ड्स ऑफ कॉन्शियसनेस सो देयर इज वन कॉन्शियसनेस वी आर ऑल वन कॉन्शियसनेस एंड दैट वन कॉन्शियसनेस बिहाइंड ऑल ऑफ अस दैट इज गॉड इन वेदांत दैट इज द मीनिंग ऑफ तत्वमसी दैट दाउ आर्ट दैट इज द मीनिंग ऑफ अहम ब्रह्मास्मि 
I am Brahman. How am I Brahman? As this being called Sarvapriyananda? No, no, no. As the consciousness, the one consciousness behind Sarvapriyananda and behind everybody else. In that sense, I am Brahman. So you are consciousness. And in your consciousness appears this body and mind. That consciousness limited by this body and mind becomes this individual. The moment you give importance to the mind and body, immediately you start seeing difference. So there is a world outside which you see is a common world shared with everywhere, everybody and in which there is an earthquake or a snowstorm or something. And there is an internal world only available to you in that body and mind which you call your own private mental world. And then you make the difference between mental and external world. But all of that external world and mental world differences are because you are looking at it from the point of view of the body-mind. Look at it from the point of view of consciousness, the entire universe is within you. Where is your mind? In your consciousness. Where is the body experienced by the mind? In your consciousness. Where are everybody else with you whom you are experiencing? In that consciousness. Aren't they in your consciousness? Otherwise how are you experiencing them? You will say, the common answer to this is, the question to them, you know, the rebuttal to this is, no, no, I am experiencing them because they are really there outside. Look, outside. Outside of what? This skin, isn't it? Moment I stand here, then true, they all become separate entities apart from me. Moment I take my stand in consciousness, that I am the awareness, all of this is something in me, the awareness. Not the mind, the awareness. Even the mind is also in the awareness. Yeah. Alright, Bill is going to ask a question, but Bill doesn't have to come here. He can ask the question from there itself. Yeah. No, I, I'll, I, I can hear his question, I think. Yeah. Now, uh, the question is, is consciousness separate from the brain? The straight answer from Vedanta is yes. And the more considered answer is this. When consciousness is functioning through the brain, when you see and hear and smell and taste and talk, then you, it, it's something functioning through the brain and nervous system. So always it seems to be together with the brain and nervous system. From a materialist reductionist point of view, the body is the only reality. And in the body you find the brain and the nervous system. Now you cannot deny consciousness. There are scientists who would love to deny consciousness. They must be zombies. And the walking dead. They are not aware. They don't have consciousness. There are some scientists who will say, no, no, there is consciousness, but it is generated by the brain. So the brain is reality. Is, is the reality which generates a kind of epiphenomenon, a secondary reality called consciousness. That is basically the very nature of the hard problem of consciousness. That's what they're asking. How is it possible for the brain to generate a first-person subjective experience? It's not possible. That's the difference between the materialist reductionist approach the matter is everything, you are nothing other than matter, and what you consider yourself to be thoughts, the person, that's just a byproduct of the brain. When the brain dies, you die also, you're finished, that's it. No religion ever believes that. You can't have religion in that, that, uh, that perspective. 
one uh, philosopher said, if you take that perspective, he put a uh, he put a bottle of coke on the table. It's fizzing. If you take that perspective, basically what the materialistic reductionist perspective is telling you is, you there's no difference really between you and that bottle of coke. That bottle is there and it's bubbling and fizzing. Uh, that and you are a little more complicated bottle of coke where it's bu bubbling and fizzing inside and producing mind and thoughts and consciousness. But basically what it is, it's just matter and interactions with matter. So that's the materialist reductionist point of view. The Advaitic point of view is, all of these are appearances in consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental. Matter is an epiphenomenon, is an appearance in consciousness. Now which side should we take? If you look at your experience, what comes first, matter or consciousness? What comes first, you or the other? You, in your own experience. Who is first? What is it you're aware of? Yourself or uh, um, the Central Park? Yourself. You are first revealed to yourself and then comes the world. What you cannot deny is the awareness. What the awareness reveals is open to question. But the awareness is there, it's not open to question. Awareness is more fundamental than matter. Consciousness is more fundamental than matter. That's what Advaita Vedanta insists. And that's what our experience always, it always supports that, that our experience, our continuous experience is that. That, that we are awareness first and then anything else. If you think about it um, for some time, you will see that there is really no way of uh, getting out of this, this logic. I remember, <clears throat> I ta remember talking to a neuroscientist. Oh, this is funny. This lady was sitting next to me in the plane. We are flying from uh, Portugal to um, Munich. And, uh, no, to, to Frankfurt. And I'd gone to attend the International Day of Yoga in, in Lisbon. And this lady, she was coming from England and she was going to India ultimately uh, to um, attend some neuroscience conference. And she's a neuroscientist. And we were together in one flight only between the short hop between uh, Portugal and Germany. Now she sat next to me and she said, she was intrigued by this dress and she said, tell me about this. And she said, I'm an Anglican, but an lapsed Anglican. I really don't believe in uh, all of that, but yeah. But tell me about what you people believe in. So I gave the, her the short talk about Vedanta, not just the three steps. That's incomprehensible unless you have been coming to the Vedanta Society for a long time. If you just tell them three steps, it will be, it won't make sense. But the short version, Cliff Notes version of uh, Vedanta, I gave it to her. Very, very intelligent, very sharp. She picked it up just like that. She got it immediately. At the end of it, I think I spoke for about 45 minutes or one hour. <laughs> At the end of it, and she asked very probing questions, including these questions. At the end of it, she said, you know, Swami, and I taught her to say Swami by that time. <laughs> you know, Swami, I am not convinced by what you say, but I cannot find a fault in that argument. There's no way I can answer what you're trying to, uh, the questions you're raising. But I, I can't, I'm not convinced. <laughs> That's good enough. Yes. So consciousness is fundamental. Can, shall we go back to an internet question?
Yes, um, a couple of questions from Van Shika and from Harry. Okay, before we go into question, sorry to interrupt. That little anecdote had a funny ending. After we got down from the plane in, in Frankfurt, she said, you know, I'm scared of flying. So if I find anybody interesting sitting next to me, I engage them in conversation for the whole duration of the flight. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the reason for her interest in Vedanta. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Yes. Is it true that householders should not chant only Om, but instead they should use some syllable along with it, like Harry Om, otherwise it has adverse effects? And from Harry, could Namakam and Chamakam be used as a worship mantra in rituals, upasana, self-knowledge, or God-realization? Mm. Two questions. First, I'll answer the question about using Om and Hari Om and all of that. These were old prejudices in India that only... Um, say a Brahmin can chant the Om, or a woman cannot chant the Om. Uh, they are uh, very orthodox people. I've, come, I've myself come across at least a couple of them, very scholarly persons, but very rigid and set in their ways. This one Swami I remember, very scholarly, wonderful Swami. Now he's supposed to lead a chanting session. Now when the women are chanting, he would start the same mantra with Namaha, not with Om. Another Swami noted that and hauled him up. He said, what is that you're doing? So he sort of sullenly kept quiet because he's, he's very Brahminical, very traditional Brahminical family. It comes from that. Now, those who go to uh, India, you know, they, they this chant of the Gayatri mantra, Om Bhuvaswa, Anuradha Paudwal has recorded it and it's chants. It goes on. So outside the monastery, that somebody was playing the, the tape. And so the, in, a, in a lady's voice, the Gayatri Mantra was being chanted hour after hour continuously. And, it, and that was just outside this Swami's room. And I told this, <laughs> and I told this Swami, serves you right. <laughs> and he grinned sheepishly also. <laughs> yeah, these are old prejudices. Absolutely not. If you, if you chant the Om, whether you are a householder or Brahmin or non-Brahmin, a woman or a man, a child or an old person, uh, Indian or Western or Chinese, whatever, you can only benefit from it. So there is no problem there. And the second thing is, the Namakam and Chamakam, there is a particular uh, very, very uh, highly regarded hymn to Shiva, Vedic, which is very popular in India. Many people have memorized it. And the question that is asked is whether it should be used in, can it be used in rituals or in upasana, which is mental worship, or in jnana, God realization, Brahma jnana. The answer, short answer is all three. There's a very interesting insight about the Vedas, all of the Vedas. The Vedas themselves have three parts. Um, one is rituals, Sanskrit, karma. Karma means work, but in Veda it means religious work, rituals. So the puja or the yajna, puja is modern, yajna is ancient Vedic, where you, the fire sacrifices, they were physical actions that you did in worship of God. So rituals, and a lot of the Veda is concerned with rituals, the majority of impact, in fact. 
The second part of the Veda is concerned with Upasana, mental worship. When you don't physically do anything anymore, you sit quietly, apparently you're not doing anything, but mentally you are worshipping. All the actions that you did physically, now you're doing it mentally. And that is done in our modern puja also. In the puja you will see the worshipper offers flowers and food and uh, chants mantras and has several gestures, you know, this mudras and all of this. So they, they do these gestures, uh, all actions, these are rituals. But then the worshipper sits at a particular time quietly as if doing nothing, but mentally he is offering all of this. So a mental simulation, like a virtual worship is going on inside without any external environment. The body is sitting quietly, mentally you are not chanting, I mean physical, um, verbally you are not chanting anything, but mentally the whole worship is performed. That is called Upasana. It's meditation basically. There's a whole range of Upasana, meditation. No physical action, no verbal chanting, but internally. The third part of the Veda deals with jnana, knowledge. What knowledge? Knowledge of the self. That part is called the Upanishads. And the whole philosophy of Vedanta is based on the Upanishads. So Vedanta basically here, what we talk about here and what we teach and transmit here is the knowledge portion of the Vedas. But the Vedas have three portions, not only the knowledge portion. The mental worship portion and the physical, the ritualistic portion. Karma, Upasana, Jnana. Karma, Upasana, Jnana. The last part, the final part, the highest part is the Jnana, the knowledge part. This is what we talk, this is what is meant by Vedanta. So when you say Vedanta society, you're talking about the third part of the, you're talking about the third part of the Vedas. Now the interest, this is well known. And uh, as an aside, let me mention that the physical action and the mental worship. Mental worship is also an action, only it's mental, internal. So both are actions. One is physical, where you're actually doing th something with your hands and chanting mantras verbally. And the other one is mental or internal, but both are actions. Since both are actions, they are clubbed together under the karma kanda, the action portion. And that leaves only the jnana kanda. So sometimes Vedas are classified into two, the action, for the work-related portion and the knowledge-related portion. But remember, the work-related portion has two parts in it. The physical aspect and the mental aspect. Now the interesting insight is, all the mantras of the Veda, the entire Veda, some of which deals with action, some of which deals with worship, mental, some of which deals with uh, knowledge. All these mantras in the Veda, they can be applied in all three. I'll repeat, all the mantras of the Vedas, they can be used for ritual, for worship and for knowledge. Karma, Upasana, Jnana. This is something many people do not know. A great scholar told me. Only some, some of the rituals, some of the mantras are obviously made for ritual. To give them an interpretation for Brahma Jnana, for enlightenment, would be difficult, you have to stretch it. But it can be done. Some of the mantras are obviously meant for meditation. And some of the mantras, so for example, if you say, Aham Brahmasmi, Tattvamasi, Thou art that, clearly meant for enlightenment, for realization. But you can still use it for ritual. 
In fact, there are texts which say that, okay, you are offering this to, to, to God, and with that you chant the Upanishadic mantras. In the Durga Puja, and uh, in the big pujas, Upanishadic mantras are actually chanted. Those portions which relate to enlightenment, to jnana, are actually chanted in a ritual. So the Namakam and Chamakam can be uh, chanted for a ritual, as, as the person says, during mental worship. If you are worshipping Shiva, you can chant the Namakam and Chamakam mentally also. Or if you look analytically, if you analyze the meanings of the Namakam and Chamakam, that will lead you to enlightenment. So all three are possible with that. Very good. We have run out of time. Okay, there were, there were two questions. This lady here, can you come here? And then I will we'll take the question at the end. That will be the last one. Can somebody tell me if the food is ready? Ready. Okay. Hello, Swamiji. Namaste. Can you um, tell us your name? My name is Deepa. Deepa. Is it on? Can you hear? Yes. yes. All right. Um, so my question is, one of your lectures, you had described consciousness um, as the sun that was reflecting on the moon and what we see from earth is yeah. the moonlight. Yeah. So with this pure consciousness, because even your, the awareness is in consciousness, not the awareness in the mind, but the non-ego, non-I awareness. So is that how we experience consciousness with this? Like, is it always through awareness? Because in deep sleep, there is no awareness, but the consciousness is still there. What and do you mean by awareness? Like the like you are seeing and speaking. No, the, you're aware the of this one room, that that's is what you mean by awareness. No, but the one that is the one that's seeing, the one that's doing the seeing. So isn't like, that then? Uh, isn't that consciousness itself? Is it? Th that's my question. Is yes. that consciousness itself? Yes. Yes. Oh. See, the example she referred to here was something that I had heard from a Swami in Uttarakhand, and I'd used it in one or two lectures. It's like this. One good way of understanding it is, imagine the earth at night. So it's darkness, covered with darkness, here's the world. And there's the moon which shines, and by the moonlight we can see things. But the moonlight is not really the moonlight. It's light from the sun reflected on the moon which comes to the earth. Now, keep this example in mind. An unseen sun, at night the sun is not seen. An unseen sun whose light shines on the moon and the moon reflects this light back to the earth and we call it moonlight and we use it to see things in the world. Now the example, is, that's the example, what it exemplifies is this. This world is the world, what we experience, this, what we are sitting in. And the mind is like the moon. The mind lit up with awareness, with consciousness, with awareness uses eyes and ears and uh, nose and skin and touch and all of that to experience the world. What is the light with which the mind is experiencing the world? It seems to be the light of the mind itself. The mind itself through the body is experiencing the world. But the light does not belong to the mind according to Vedanta. It belongs to the Atman. You see Atman, if you say body and mind and world, everybody is okay with it because here is the world, here is the body and if I look inside, yes, I can see the mind, experience the mind. The moment you say Atman, moment you say witness, moment you say pure consciousness, two problems arise. One is, what are you talking about? I can't experience it. One. Second problem is, people sometimes mistake the mind itself for the witness. The mind trying to play the witness. And then they think, yeah, I know what you mean. You don't. <laughs> uh -huh. 
If you really knew what I meant, you would be enlightened. <laughs> but use that example. The sun, the unseen sun is like the unseen Atman here. It's not visible. But its light is what lights up the moon and illumines the earth. The Atman's consciousness or Atman is consciousness. That consciousness or awareness is what floods our mind, making our minds very, very conscious. And with that consciousness, the minds use the sense organs and the body to experience itself and the world. So, that consciousness, call it consciousness, awareness, whatever you call it, the pure consciousness or pure awareness or pure witness is the one, that one. It's the unseen seer. If you are aware of it, then, it's, then you are aware of something in the mind, not that one. That is the one which is aware. It's, it's, it's you yourself. It's the real you. Don't try to grasp that. If you try to grasp it, you will grasp something in the body-mind and you will think that this is the Atman. No. Or you will be unable to grasp anything in the body and mind, you will say it's Shunyam, void. Nothing is there. No, both are wrong. It's not an objective thing in the mind. It's also not non-existence also. <coughs> it is that light in which the objective thing in the mind and the absence called Shunya or void, both are lit up. And that is what you are. Additionally, sometimes you find, uh, I see in uh, Nisarga Dattaji's books, I am that and all, he uses two terms. Remember, those are all translations from Marathi. So he uses two terms, awareness and consciousness. And that leads to confusion in uh, those who are in uh, Vedanta. He says consciousness, at, after death, consciousness will go away. Only the absolute remains. But what he means by the absolute, is what Vedanta calls Brahman or Atman or what I am calling pure consciousness here. So, don't get uh, mixed up on the terms. That which is the unseen seer, unheard hearer, if I may use the words, the one which lights up the moon of my mind, that sun of consciousness, that's my real nature and that's your real nature too. Thank you for that question. Thank you. I will, let's just hear the question, yes. Okay, okay, from there itself. Yeah, what is the but question? The question is that how we are limited being aware, but you all who meditated so much, like Buddha, Swami Vivekananda, if you can a little bit about that. Okay, I, I, get the, I, get the, I get the drift of the question. <laughs> I get the drift of the question. The awareness or consciousness, Atma or Chaitanya, whatever word you use, is common to all of us. Rather, we are that. The differences between us, between say Vivekananda and the rest of us, these are discussed. How do some yogis have extraordinary power? Those differences are in the minds of those per persons. They have developed the potential of the subtle body called Sukshma Sharira. Our minds have tremendous potential. We don't know it. Vedanta hops and skips over those and goes straight to the highest. 
It takes you straight to the top peak of Mount Everest and drops you there. You, you are on the top. The highest reality is you are Satchidananda. That's finished. But you have already skipped over many things. The valleys which come before that. So there are many things talked about in the Yoga Sutras or in the Tantra. And, and they talk about extraordinary powers which can be gained. Which Vedanta is not interested in. Advaita Vedanta. It wants to know what am I really. That immortal reality by knowing which I'll be free of samsara. But those powers are talked about in the Yoga Sutras. In Patanjali Yoga Sutra, third chapter. You will find great discussion on, of these powers you are talking about. Knowing the future, knowing the contents of other people's minds, things like that. And the, if you see that and it seems very easy, like, you, oh, I could do it too. <laughs> Not so fast. But, but those, they say that the mind can be developed, the subtle body can be developed to experience these powers. I've seen a little bit of it in my own life. I've seen some great uh, masters. So I cannot doubt that these things are possible. All right. Let us bring it to a close. It was a very fruitful session and we have gone well over time. <laughs> Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu